Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Now, I'm a bit jealous of you, Mr. Hammond, because you have been mountain biking in the lovely sunny island of Madeira. Pray tell. I have indeed. Five of us, gentlemen of a certain age, went off to slightly unwisely probably do some downhill mountain biking, but it was truly wonderful. I've had a really good break, thank you. And uh, yeah, we had a nice little squad out there with its own strange cultures. And uh, yeah, we had just brilliant fun together. It was wonderful. And so did you completely switch off or did you stray by looking at a little bit of social media while you're out there? I was pretty good. I know that the graveyards are full of indispensable people, so I've learned to actually not look at my email and and that worked pretty well. But I did have a little look at social media. We're starting to get a bit of interest on social media, quite a few comments and uh, some really interesting insights coming from our listeners, which is just really nice to see. So what stood out? Anyone in particular? The one that really made me chuckle a little bit was, some, but also it's a good reminder, was um, Matt, our listener, um, having listened to Dr. Jess talking about psychological safety, he, he reminded me of this quote, the minute you stop making mistakes is the minute you stop learning. He thought he'd heard it from a sort of ex-colleague who was a bit of a guru, but it turned out to be a Miley Cyrus quote, which made me <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> and there's wisdom there. There's wisdom there. But it is interesting, actually, because the University of Chicago, that they did an interesting piece of research with teams, a number of teams, and asked them to self-rate whether they thought they were high-performing. And 90% of them thought they were high-performing. Then they brought out a criteria for what high-performance looked like, and actually only 17% hit that. So what does that mean? Well, if you don't measure it, and if you don't know what you're measuring, then it, it becomes difficult to know how well you're doing and what your mistakes are. And then it becomes personal. So, and, and I think today's episode is is really spot on because sports teams have been doing this for probably a lot longer than businesses or corporations. And they've got used to having the hard conversation around the data and the analytics in order really in that singular goal of improving performance. So I, th- I think, think that should be an interesting avenue for our podcast today. I think it will. We're hearing from Owen Finnegan, who's an ex-professional sportsman, ex-Wallaby, Australian rugby, and now is the CEO of the Kids Cancer Project. And he has loads to say about teams on of all kinds that he's come across through his really very career. So let's listen to him now. Yeah, just get us started, Owen. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know a lot of people know you, but just uh, give us a little bit of a potted background. Could you get us all moving? Yeah, I had a. I was lucky enough to, after six or seven years in the workforce, to drop into uh, professional sports. Played rugby for up until I was almost twenty-two years of age, and then rugby became professional. Yeah, I was able to move from being a electrician into playing rugby, and you know, followed that career for about sixteen years, uh, both playing and coaching at uh, you know professional level and then post that move in moved into the not-for-profit world so currently the ceo of the kids cancer project a national charity in australia that funds a scientific research so looking for better treatments and better survival and better quality of life for 
the children diagnosed with cancer. Wonderful. It's an incredible organisation. I hope we'll we'll hear a bit of that uh, later. But uh, if we sort of rewind a little bit in that, Owen, what, talk to us about those early days, could you, and th- start thinking about what drew you into sport and that world of teams as well. What were your early experiences as, as you made that shift into, into professional sport? Yeah, I think you know, I played a bit of everything when I was growing up, whether it be water polo, swimming, you know, local surf club, played rugby league and rugby union till I was almost 21, cricket and tennis and you know, the Aussie lifestyle is all about sports and you know playing as much and as many as you can. So came from Irish family, two brothers and two sisters, and I'm the only one born in Australia. So mum and dad you know, immigrated out from Ireland and, uh, yeah, so lucky enough to, to grow up here in Australia and it's a real sporting background. So, yeah, conscious now that I drive my kids around everywhere and I just remember <laughs> my mum and dad dropped me around fields around uh, in the Sydney, taxi but, service yeah for most of my uh, early days <laughs> and do, and so oh and you were obviously one of these like really annoying people that was really good at all sports so how did you start choosing and narrowing it down when when you were probably talented at a number of things I think I was probably more average than uh, most of them. And then I fell into rugby. It was more of a social decision in the early 19, when I was 19 or 20 years old. And you know, rugby was on a Saturday and you'd have a few beers on a Saturday night. You felt less and less like playing a game of rugby league on a Sunday. But then I you know, made some junior rep teams and represented New South Wales and Australia at under-19s age groups. And as I said, I was working full-time as a electrician and playing provincial footy for the first couple of years and it wasn't until rugby became professional that I moved down to Canberra, spent almost two decades down there playing and working in, in both rugby and not-for-profit. So it was a bit of a lucky transition, I think. Yeah, it's, it's great to have, you know, and you learn a lot about teams in you know, between you know, moving from a job and working then into you know, professional sport and then you know, back out of it and into running a you know, not-for-profit and a charity and so many different stakeholders and managing relationships. So sport's a really good tool for that, yeah, managing different groups and different people. Oh, I have to ask you, were you a good electrician? Yeah, I was reasonably good. I only electrocuted myself twice uh, in seven <laughs> years, so I think that's a reasonably <laughs> that a good, good track yeah, The first one wasn't my fault. The tradesman supervising told me that he'd isolated a switch, but it was somehow wired up wrong. Yeah. Could have been all over. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was an enjoyable, yeah, I seven years post finishing school in that and now it was a good time but as I said you, you rarely do you get that sort of lucky where you can you know, change from you know, working a nine to five job to working a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the afternoon out in the oval and, and having as a job you know I wanted to do that anyway so down yeah, getting paid for it was a bonus on top so Lucky in a way to straddle both the amateur and professional areas and probably not take it for granted on, on how lucky I was. Great. Well, you're here to tell, tell the tale after your two electrocutions, then into into the not-for-profit for world, the, the Kids Cancer Project. How did, you, how did you end up making that transition? Yeah, it was sort of a, a move. I'd been in the not-for-profit for about four years and I've been at the Kids Cancer Project for about six years. So I was moving from Canberra back to Sydney where I grew up and the kids were going to high school so I was looking for a to stay in the charity world and um, you know I left my family up in Sydney for about five months until I found the right job and the kids cancer project was it two or three months before I started there my father passed away with probably four months before with cancer um now it was a really appealing sort of charity for me they did great work and also and when I was playing at the Brumbies and the Wallabies when I first moved to Canberra my roommate flatmate was david giffen and 
uh, you know, our children are the same age. You know, they're both 19 now, but when our kids were two, his was diagnosed with childhood cancer. So Giff was from up in Brisbane and his wife was up front in Brisbane and they were living in Canberra and just got a job assisting Eddie Jones as the assistant Wallaby coach probably you know, a couple of months prior to the diagnosis and was about to go over on a European tour and then his son Joseph got uh, diagnosed. So, yeah, I moved up to Sydney and they moved into my sister's place for the first you know, five or six months and where we could, we were in the hospital giving him a hand. So, yeah, it was pretty much 24-7. And when you've got other kids, one one's at home and one's at the hospital. So it can be really challenging. Having gone through, you know, a little bit of that, not as a parent, but as a good close friend, you understand the difference that, you know, good treatments can make and how even on the long-term side effects that, you know, the treatment causes and the challenges that they have as a young kid, but then constantly, you know, through till now to... It was uh, a really good fit, and it's one of those jobs that we can wake up every morning and uh, be excited about making a difference. That's amazing. You're doing amazing work, and uh, it's just really worth taking a look at for all our listeners to see what you get up to. Um, so looking at those two worlds, or several worlds, if you include everything you've done, people are often looking to sport to draw lessons for leadership in, in business, in not-for-profits, and outside the world of sport. What, what would you say are the sort of commonalities you've seen? And what are the key differences? How would you draw those those out? Yeah, well, I think you know, I've been in really successful teams. I've been in pretty some ordinary teams and some in between teams. But obviously, the better teams, winning World Cups and winning Wellesley Cups and having a full cup, it was around Rod McQueen and John Eels and George Greig, and so lead, strong leaders, good business. You know, and I just look at. We've started in the not-for-profit world and our charity sort of investing in data in the last two or three years. And I just think, you know, we were looking at data in rugby 20 years ago, looking at statistics and trends and performance and viewing those statistics to guide how you performed and, and what your targets were and KPIs and looking at improving your game and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, we do the same sort of thing now, but it's 20 years, as I said, two decades down the track. So there's a lot of things in sports that guide that, a lot of it, and a lot of the relationship stuff and you know, understanding your team just not as you know, people that do a job but individuals as well is really important because you can have some wonderful teams, but unless you get everyone on the same page and some sort of a connection, you're not going to improve. Yeah, I get the impression um, from outside professional sport that there's a very rich uh, sort of culture of feedback. It seems to be that you know you, that uh, teams will review the videos, they will look at the data, and they will be really straight about about what's actually happened on the field. And just people take it. Is that is that a reasonable sort of a view from the outside is that what that is actually like on the inside definitely mm. it, it can be yeah it can be gruesome some of the feedback it's uh <laughs> you know, I've seen. how is that delivered is, yeah it's straight that- talking and without offense you know, it's, it, i've seen uh yeah, i've seen eddie jones pull you know front row forwards into the change rooms and make them take their shirts off and tell them how bad they look and they need to get in the gym and do some more work, do some more training. And it's, it's really brutal feedback. But, you know, if you tried it in any other job, you'd, you'd be uh, in all sorts of trouble. Yeah. Is, is, is there a 
a bit of a fine line between public shaming and, and feedback there, probably. <laughs> yeah, and I saw something recently. One of the Irish internationals, Rob Carney, came over to Australia to play. And when he came over, he was you know, a bit critical of Michael Checker and his style of coaching. It's Sometimes in, in sport, it's easier to be brutal because everyone's 100% on the same page. And if you can't have an honest conversation, and so, so there was, you know, I remember doing work on, Years ago, and you know, they were talking about the right side and the left side of your brain when you're having conversations and in rugby circles. You, you don't really have that, just whatever's in your brain there. You don't try and make it nice, it just comes out. You don't try and, yeah, you don't worry about what people are. But in work, you could be thinking something totally different and on the other side of your brain. You're saying, How do I say this to the person really nicely so it doesn't offend them? So, yeah, conversations can be really strong. And I think in teams, the more honest conversations you can have where people see it as constructive feedback rather than criticism, that strengthens the team. And even individually in professional sport, you are held to accountability on your performance. And you can imagine if you've got 10 or 15 lineouts in a game and you don't lift someone or you miss a call and there's everyone in the team does it, everyone on the forwards makes one mistake, That's you're losing 8 of your 15 lineouts and then you're not winning a test match or a World Cup. So it relies on... That performance, unless you're training that sort of, and you've got a high caliber of of individual who who doesn't accept mistakes, yeah, then uh, yeah, that you're definitely held to accountable, and you, yeah, that's a day in day out where you get good habits. And well, you mentioned there that it's really e- it's easier to give feedback in the in the sports world because you said everyone's on the same page. What, what what's the difference there? That we obviously in 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 business and in other out, you know outside sport, let's say. We really want people to have a, to be on the same page, to be sort of purpose driven and 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 really aligned. What was the was the difference there with sport that you have that? Uh... Well, I think in sport most people are you know, driven by their performance and their team's performance. So if you're in a team sport in particular, um, you know your the individual bit is your salary compared to someone else's salary. But you don't. That doesn't come into your mind when you run out in the football field. You're not thinking someone else do it because he's paid. Or it's about you doing your job and doing it well and being happy with what you've got and you know striving for the team's goals and, and everyone's. So I look at most of the teams I played in. People are sacrificing things to go into. You do a little bit in, in work, but probably not as much because you you go in working, but you're sacrificing your time at home or depending on the hours you work or when you work. In rugby, like you know, you can move countries, you can move states, or you can move into teams, and you're you know, moving a lot. And you know, because there's not too many people that'll have a 15 year or 20 year career in one spot and not have to move. Yeah, so you sacrifice, you move your family, you move schools, you move. So it's about then you're there for a reason and performance, and you now the rest of your team want to do it. It's a really clear alignment and clear goal. So that you know, something that I've learned that if you don't have it in a business sense and you're not aligning everybody and you're not, you know, you haven't got that clear goal and vision and people know how their roles speed up into that, then you don't have that performance. So it's a front rower, you know, scrum, for example, who pushes hard and wins every scrum can be just as good for a team as, you know, a David Campese or a Joe Roth or a Matt Burke scoring tries out in the wing and looking beautiful and pretty <laughs> when all the hard work's been done up the front. And so the bit I wanted to ask was, so if you're used to that brutal feedback and it's an all-in, what does that do to the culture of the team? Like, what, do you, what does it feel like to be part of that high-performing team? I actually think it makes it stronger, the culture. There's no, yeah, there's no, 
trying to mince around your words or if, you know, someone has a bad day and they come in and, you know, I remember it was like, you know, I was a bit of a pra- practical joker when I was playing, but I used to go into the medical room and all the, you have to go in there every morning and weigh yourself and do health and well-being and you know, talk about how irritable you were. And I used to go in there every day just to see who was irritable so I could go and then wind them up and get them a bit more, you know. <laughs> take the pressure off a little bit and ease off and, and you know, rile them up. And most places, if you went in there and you looked at someone's data like that and saw that they were irritable and you tried to make them more irritable, they'd probably you would get the same result. But, yeah, I think there's a, it was a really good environment where, you know, honest conversations expected. I suppose that the, the thing that I hated most about professional sport was when you had, you know, times that you weren't in a team or you were dropped and you were told something by a coach and you 100% knew it wasn't right. Yeah, or it's not. It was just, yeah, just tell you the tell you the truth, and I'll be happy. If you someone's better than me, just say they are. Don't say it's for balance, or don't say it's because, yeah, you know, yeah, we want to rotate them around, or we want to, you know, a fresh approach, or because he hasn't done it to the rest of the team. So I think, and the more honest you can be with your team in a work perspective, the better. But sometimes you you have to sugarcoat things because you. And it's not too often you can go say to someone that you're you've done a crap job. And you know, and not upset them, and particularly when they're emotionally invested, you know that they, they want to be doing a really good job. It's not just a it's not just a head decision, you know. You, there's a passion behind that as well. So you've had that. You've had this experience, elite sports, highly analytical, and then you move into what was the, what about that change? What was different? Oh, one thing was the hours. Like I was like, I suppose I was lucky that I had a slower transition, 13 or 14 years of playing. And as I said, you had a couple of hours in the morning, you go for lunch with the boys, and then you had a couple of hours in the afternoon, and then you're finished. But then I had four or five years coaching and that was like, you know, get in there before training at 5.36. So you could train the boys at 7.30 for a couple of hours, then review that training session to see if you could improve anything, then train in the afternoon and then, you know, review that session and look at you know previous games and past games, and then it became like a real job. And you thought, oh, this is uh, a little bit different. And then moving into sort of the not-for-profit world, it was yeah, you know, the hardest thing was exactly that. Like moving into a job where not everyone was as aspirational for the same thing, and and there for different reasons. I look at most workplaces, and you've got a in our one, we've got a broad range of staff from different backgrounds, and some have degrees and others don't, and. They're all coming here. There's 20 people coming for different reasons and finding the balance of that where when you're in sport and you're in a team, the 20 people are coming for the one thing. You know, so trying to find you know, how the, all those relationships and how they mix and meld and actually even then, you know, do you know what you're doing? So I look at my first four years in a role, I just thought things were good, but you don't actually know. So it's only in the last four or five years that we've been surveying people and finding out actually what is it what we're asking them the question of what they do and don't like and you know are they working together as a team and how can we improve and what's good and what isn't you know it's a you can always think you've got the right answers but unless you actually hear it from the horse's mouth you might not even be on the right track yeah you can make assumptions can't you i mean that that's i think that's that's quite a big shift that the lead often thinks they have to make all the decisions they own all the accountability and i think that's probably now changing a little bit around more broadly the whole team owning that and that was a bit that was a, probably the the biggest thing that i learned early in in professional sport and rod mcqueen was the master of it 
you know, was the player ownership bit. Like he he organised and had everything running and had people you know, facilitating conversations. But I'm a hundred percent sure that most of the things answers that were facilitated were the ones that he wanted anyway. We were guided down that path, and he had everything planned. But you know, player ownership was a big thing as far as you know people buying into you know, the dream or the vision or what you're trying to do. And the, the big thing about leadership is mo- obviously leading and motivating team, but getting them to uh, come on the journey with you. So I look at my rugby career, it was m- more about not the destination, not what you won and not where you got to, but the journey and what you learn on the way and your people you did it with. And that's where you have to get, you know, a lot of businesses have a, a destination they want to get to, but the important part of, you know, managing and leading a team and motivating them is, you know, having them on the journey, you know, and moving them along the way and motivating and inspiring them to get towards whatever that position is. And you've done some incredible work with the Kids Cancer Project and you, your ability to really raise the game inside there. So how, how have you used analytics in, for that, for this team in order to be able to, in such a crucial, crucial role? Yeah, so there, there's... A couple of different ways in data. So data with our donors and stuff like that, we've been a lot more analytical and and we've had a wonderful partnership with SAS for over three years. And you know, so I looked four years ago, I was just, I had a data manager, he was just inputting all our donations and that's all we did. But now we're looking closer into that data and who's more likely to move into what area. How do we, you know, how do we make the donor's donation more impactful. And so there's a lot of work around that sort of stuff. But then internally with the team, we've been using Squadify. So I came across Squadify and that, that sort of concept of the three Cs of clarity and competency and, and climate. When we were, in a, once again, in Australian rugby 15 years plus ago, and then, then thought that could be translated into what we do at the Kids Cancer Project. So surveying our staff around those people, and like I said, our scores were probably embarrassing to start off with. But me thinking that I was doing a good job leading this team, and they all knew what they did. So sometimes it's it's funny because even in the clarity space of you know, I've got a small team of twenty, but you have enough meetings with people, and you're telling them as much information as you can, then you. Because you have all these conversations, sometimes you think everyone knows what you know, but they don't. So uh, making sure that there is that clarity across the team and everyone knows how their little bit adds up into, as I said in rugby terms, everyone's got a little role to play in the performance of the team. And it's the same in a business. Everyone's got to be on the same page. And the really good leaders I've had have brought people along on that journey. You know, so I look at John Eels as the captain of our Wallaby team that won the World Cup. He had Phil Kearns, David Giffen, David Wilson, George Gregan, Stephen Larkin, Tim Horan, and Matt Burke. They're all leaders in their own way. And it wasn't like John tried to be on the captain. He passed different sections of the game and control, and they had you know, committees, leaderships, and medium leadership teams. And everyone, you know, everyone was would have thought they were a leader in that group because everyone had as much input and that built a reliance not on one person but on on a larger team it's really interesting to hear how you've used data there you mentioned earlier on you were in some ordinary teams i think for our non-australian listeners then that means quite bad teams so what what can we what do you did you learn from those it's it's interesting to to see the sort of real high performance and the success that you've had but those teams that just didn't work give us can you give us some examples of that and what you've what you've extracted from that in your team leadership 
So I went to the Brumbies in 1996 and we were tagged Misfits Rejects. So there were other provinces that were stronger and better, but we moved. And from day one, we were tagged as, you know, the, but it, it's that old adage of champion team versus a team of champions. So, but, and that everyone expected the other provinces to be stronger. But by year one, we were, you know, in the top five. By year two, we were in a final of the Super Rugby. And then, and then, yeah. So I think in my ten years at the Brumbies, we made six or seven finals, and we won two of them. And, and across ten years, that's repeated success and like and a strong continued performance, which is what you need for a high performing team. But I've been in other teams where I've had better players, but they haven't been on the same page. So I think that idea of you know, of player ownership and everyone playing their part, having you know, a champion team where everyone respects what other people are, are contributing. Not one person wants to take all the credit. You know, I remember one of Rod McQueen's big things was, you know, I think you know, after one of the games, I don't know what it was, maybe the British and Irish Lions, he sent roses to all the wives and partners because you need to celebrate. You, know, you have to stop and smell the roses it was his thing. So that was the way you celebrated. Understand what we've done. Take time out to think about what, what we've achieved. and that, So a lot of it can be – it's not about just getting – 15 of the best players around the world and stick it together. Yeah, they'll do a great job, but you could get 15 people that want to work really hard for each other and aren't the best in the world but can perform against them because they've got that cohesion and those team qualities and they're working hard for each other and they you know, possibly don't all 15 of the rock stars will want to be rock stars and impress, but they won't want to do the hard work which you need. So it's funny, those you know, teamwork, and there were some teams like that I'd been in the workforce for seven years, but it wasn't until I got to rugby that I did my first SWOT analysis. And that sort of idea of understanding, and Rod McQueen's big thing was understanding, you know, Sun Tzu, understanding your enemy and understanding having a alignment and what you're doing. And so all those things become important about in the workplace as well, about having a good team, understanding the strengths of your own team and, you know, in not just working on your weaknesses as such, but using the strengths of your team to 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 your benefit as well. And you've you've managed to extract a, a lot of goodness there from your from your sports um, and not for profit careers um, for everyone. If we were to wrap up, what would you what advice would you give team leaders and teams today? Yeah, it's funny when you sent the invite to join you on the podcast, and I looked at your title, "We Not Me." Now that is probably a big one when you're talking about teams, and I remember. So we had leading up to the World Cup in 1999, we were, in, we were staying in some uh, shared accommodation and they used to have a thing called Quote of the Week. And one of the quotes that then ended up on our cheat sheet for the Rugby World Cup in 1999 was We Not Me. So it was a, it was Ben Tune who came up with that. And it, it actually became the catch cry for our, for our World Cup campaign in that do it for the better of the team and not for yourself and there's no individuals and it's all for the greater good and it's not about any one person taking the limelight. And, and I think we've got that even at our board level where you know, most of our team now, even our board, are, so it's not as if they're high and mighty. It's all encompassing. We're all equal. We're all the same. And we had a stage there where we just went from one thing to the next thing and didn't really stop to look at our performance and celebrate success and analyze that performance and see what we could improve in the next time round it was we were just so busy going from one thing to the next where if you don't 
take time to do some of that analysis, then you don't improve. That's great. And we have to um, endorse the we, not me takeaway there. That's uh, great. I must say, I thought we'd been very clever in coming up with that that title, but good to hear it helped the World Cup back in the day. So, um, Owen, thank you so much for joining us. You've really um, managed to share some some light and actually some amazing stories and take us into the sports world to see what uh, teams today can learn. So thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. And if any of the listeners want to learn a little bit more about the Kids Cancer Project. It's uh, kidscancerproject.org.au. Great charity. Started 26 years ago by a bus driver, and in the last 15 years we've been able to commit over $50 million into childhood cancer research, so we're getting there and making a difference. So, Peter and Dan, thanks for your time, and thanks for inviting me to We Not Me. Thank you so much. See you soon. You know, Peter, I'm really left with a deep sense from sports teams that Owen talked about there about this culture where data is used that they always think about, look at what they're doing and are quite critical and are prepared to talk really straight with each other. I'm not sure I've worked in an environment quite as open, you know, as 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 clear about that uh, as he described. That, that's the thing that I'm left with. Yeah, quite in- insightful, I thought, when he moved from being a player to a coach. And he, he realised he had to work a lot longer. But also his time was spent analysing the coaching sessions and the analytics and making the choices out of that. So that's that shows you the the, the level of prominence it has and has had you know, throughout that sporting sporting world. But it, it enables that straight talking type of conversation. You talked feedback being brutal. So I don't think I would advocate that in any shape or form. But it draws me back to Jess's point, Dr. Jess's point about, you know, that psychological safety. How, how can you, how, literally, how can you play the ball, not the man? How can you get those facts so that you can have that type of conversation, so that you can lean into how, to improve and support and and then with it that brings that whole high level of trust it does bring back that sort of idea of of the ability to as as dr jess said to create that environment where you can move into discomfort as you say some of those are over the line <laughs> for sort of nowadays but that's the point that uh, people need to get to and i think that that drive for player ownership sort of enables that i think people are, if people really feel they own it then i think that people will both be analytical and 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 face the face the you know, the brutal facts, but also I'll be able to take them when they need them, which is a, a, a driver of performance, of course. And then I think the final bit is well, what a brilliant title! So rugby world cup, they get a brilliant call cry or out for the team. We not me, and um, yeah, brilliant name. I thought that was and, and so good. We made a podcast. I thought we'd been quite original there, but obviously not. <laughs> exactly. The the part about champion teams. So, you know, a, 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 a champion team will always be the team of champions. I know this is something you and I've come across many times and that is backed by the research as well. I, I suspect in future podcasts, we'll explore that a little bit more. But, you know, bringing stars together is a common mistake made by yeah, sports teams. And uh, when Owen talked there about the Brumbies and it was sort of a little bit of a groove of misfits, but they actually created a really great team from those folks rather than just hiring the sort of rock stars. And actually, it was interesting to hear how they made a team a team. So they delegated responsibility down through the team. So there wasn't just one captain. They're, you know, in, in, in alignment with their different roles and positions, 
inside the team. They had different responsibilities. So I think that's a really interesting element where you've got leadership as opposed to just the one leader. And I think that's a key element. It's, and we see that play out often in the sports field. It emerges in the business world, but it has to be really fostered and encouraged to make that happen, but with great benefits. Yeah, it really does. And we, we've been sort of raised to think that there's some great leader there, but actually that leadership, as uh, Owen said, is best distributed, is best shared out. So um, so wonderful. Um, I think there's a lot to chew over there. What's, um, looking forward to next week's episode, Pierre, what have we got coming up? Oh, we found somebody relatively famous, which is really quite exciting. So um, next week, we're going to go on a very different tangent into the arts world, into acting, into on the set and talk to Eric Thompson, common feature on our TV and film for the last you know, 20 years uh, down here in Australia and, uh, and as well internationally. So it is going to be a real joy to be talking to him. Really looking forward to it. And, uh, and again, a, a, just a totally different view on these uh, interesting little units called teams. So that's it for this episode, Pia. Everyone can find the show notes and resources at scorefy.net. You just have to click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. Um, we Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman at origin.fm. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>